Welcome to State of the 38th. I'm your host, Alex Weissman, here with co-host Henry Ettinger for our weekly roundup. (laughs) Uh, So today we're going to talk about politics that are especially local, then the state of the state, and finally our from D.C. to Denver statement when we bring national news and contextualize it for everybody in Colorado's life. We only have one local story this week because it was pretty calm in Denver. Not a lot of terrible Denver Post editorials to really give us a lot to work with. So we're just going to talk about affordable housing in Denver. So as Denver gets bigger, which it is, it's one of the fastest growing cities in the country, the risk of gentrification and rent hikes are much higher. In fact, rents have reached a record high of $1,371 a month, according to the University of Denver which is problematic because it means that poor residents aren't able to afford housing that could push them onto the streets or push them into suburbs, which leads to worse disparities in terms of access to economic resources. And so the mayor, Michael Hancock, has determined that it's in the city's best interest to pursue policies which improve access to affordable housing in the city so that everybody gets equitable access to the same economic resources and jobs. So the proposal which has been reached is a public-private partnership which would essentially mirror the Housing and Urban Development Department's uh, plans for Section 8 housing. So with Chipotle, actually, Denver would have a dollar-for-dollar match for housing vouchers for 400 units of housing, which would pay for rents up to 35% of the residents' incomes. That essentially is how Section 8 vouchers work as well. So, yeah, it seems like a pretty decent idea. There are some uber-liberals who say that vouchers ignore the problem because not all housing areas accept vouchers, and so they say it actually leads to worse segregation. But I don't know if I really buy that argument. If you're making housing more affordable, there's more disposable income. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, I mean, there's not really an alternative at that point. Like, even if it ignores the real problem, it at least alleviates some of the symptoms, uh, which is probably a good thing, so. Yeah, and actually, one of the things that this Denver Post article points out about the program is that it also encourages 5% of residents' incomes to go into a housing savings program so that eventually they can have home ownership. In the past, the number one vehicle for upward mobility in the United States has been home ownership. If you're able to sell your house at a higher value, you're able to move up socioeconomic ranks and gain access to more economic opportunities. This also just lets you pass down money to children, future generations, which is how a lot of families have accrued wealth and part of the reason that there's still very significant income or rather wealth disparities between African-Americans and white people. Yeah, the hope is that it would, this isn't obviously some sort of reparations program, but the hope (laughs) is that it would make up for discriminatory housing practices, which kept African-Americans and other minority groups out of areas of wealth in the past. That has entrenched a lack of social mobility, especially racially. And so the hope is that by expanding access to these sort of housing vouchers, more people can have actual material wealth moving forward to help stem long-term problems. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I'm not 100% sure that it's enough because it essentially is just 
adding Section 8 housing vouchers. Um, they say that they're not working in coordination or against the government, so it's essentially acting as just another housing voucher. It'd be interesting to see whether or not this can work on some sort of state level and whether or not other corporations are interested in public-private partnerships in the past, in, in the future. Um, I don't really know what Chipotle seeks to gain out of it other than philanthropy, but it seems like a really good program, unless they're earning something off of the properties that they're building and the units of housing which they're developing. Right. Um, it's also just so that people get the idea. My dad works in affordable housing. So there's like two main types of affordable housing packages. There's like the section eight vouchers. And then there's also this federal program, the low income housing tax credit, which allows developers to build for tax deductible dollars. So long as they allow their tenants to seek lower rents. That's another way in the past that the government has sought to, improve access to housing. Um, I don't, yeah, it seems like a pretty decent plan. Yeah, I'm fine with it. Um, the Denver Post editorial board's behind it, so, you know. And on top of that, it it might even be better than other affordable housing programs if for no other reason than the partnership with Chipotle means that less government or taxpayer money goes towards the same goal, same outcome. All right. So with that, let's move to state of the state. What's going on in the gubernatorial race, Henry? So Ed Perlmutter did drop out of the race a bit more than a month ago, so it's not really news. Uh, and this is in spite of being the first candidate to be endorsed by a major trade union, which is something we talked about in our June 3rd roundup. So the question now that he's dropped out of the gubernatorial race is whether or not he'll run to keep his seat in Congress. He is currently a representative for Colorado's 7th District, which is fairly left-leaning. According to the Denver Post, other candidates for his seat in Congress have said that they would drop out if he announced his candidacy, but it's a little unclear if that'll happen because he's already promised he wouldn't run. So even though it looks like he almost certainly would win, there's something to be said for it hurting his credibility, given that he uh, wouldn't get, given that he has said he would not run for Congress and he is would be reversing that, and also that he said he would run for governor and would be reversing on that, which is less of an issue given how early in the race he dropped out. Um, and this would be an issue because it would make it harder to run against Cory Gardner in 2020 for Senate or something of the sort, so a different office. Cory uh, Gardner so, served some negative media attention Yes, the <laughs> other so we've all been hearing about North Korea recently. <laughs> so we're going to move away from the state of the 38th, 38th state in Colorado to the state of the 38th parallel, <laughs> the line that separates North and South Korea. So recently, Cory Gardner called Kim Jong-un a whack job. Pretty controversial opinion there, which prompted Pyongyang's Korean Central News Agency to say that, quote, for a psychopath like Gardner to hurl evil accusations at our highest dignity is a serious problem. That a man mixed in with human dirt like Gardner, who has lost basic judgment and body hair, could only spell misfortune for the United States. So, regardless of credibility, as long as Perlmutter can keep all of his body hair, any potential race for senator should go just fine. So now that Perlmutter has left the gubernatorial race, it leaves Mike Johnston, who is the state senator, who was also a principal of a high school here in Colorado, Carrie Kennedy, who is the former state treasurer, Jared Polis, who is the representative from the 2nd District, 
and Noel Ginsburg, who's some sort of social entrepreneur and businessman for the Democrats. There are early poll numbers which suggest that Democrats are much more likely to win the gubernatorial election and also House races in Colorado in 2018 because Colorado is roughly split one-third Democrat, one-third Republican, and one-third Independent. And so the independent vote seems to be leaning towards Democrats, probably in light of the Trump administration. According to one poll back in May, independents were likely to support a Democratic candidate. Uh, 34% of independents said they would support a Democratic candidate, while 21% said they would support Republicans, which gives Democrats a 13% lead. So the contest for the Democratic gubernatorial candidate is right now seems to be the clearest line to Democrats remaining in the governor's mansion past 2018. And one of the biggest developments in the Democratic primary has been that Mike Johnston received an endorsement from Gary Hart, who was a former senator for the United States. He was also special envoy to Northern Ireland, but his biggest accomplishment was running in both 1984 and 1988 for the presidency. He never passed the Democratic primary process, losing first to Mondial and then dropping out to Dukakis in 88. Um, he looked like he was going to become president in 1988. He was only brought down by a sex scandal that the Miami Herald came out with. It was the first of its kind, really blindsided people. He still is a huge weight in Democratic Party politics, especially in Colorado, since he was the closest that anyone in Colorado has ever been to the White House. Um, so his endorsement of Mike Johnston indicates that he is likely to be the front runner. Jared Polis, however, is already a U.S. representative in the House and has a much more national following. So it'll be interesting to see where other establishment Democrats fall on endorsements for the gubernatorial race. Um, and as far as the Republican primary goes, they have quite a few more primary candidates currently. This has been getting a lot less attention than the Democratic primary, uh, the Democratic primary given approval ratings of Trump in Congress at the moment. Uh, I, currently, there's just a you know, more focus being given to the other party. So... Uh, the other interesting thing about this race is that apparently there are just a lot of very wealthy candidates from both sides. So Jared Polis was a former businessman. Uh, Noel Ginsburg with the Democrats is a uh, technology entrepreneur. So there's also, I believe, um, Kent Thury, so CEO of DeVita Incorporated. <laughs> Oh my God, he's running for... Salary so he's one of the Republican primary candidates. So this was the guy who like dresses up as a knight yeah, for all yeah. of the... He was on he John Oliver. His business as a village. <laughs> so he's one of the Republican primary candidates. The Denver Post says that this gubernatorial race will likely break any former records for spending on the gubernatorial race, which means that we have a lot of political ads to look forward to from both sides. Yeah. So all of this for Colorado in the long term, this is sort of a watershed moment for interest in Colorado politics nationally. In the past, Colorado has been considered a swing state and by demographic party identity shows that it is, but there was a pretty big 
article back in December by the Atlantic, which essentially stipulates that Colorado is no longer a swing state because it's disconnected from the Republican Party on a national level. And so whether or not Democrats are able to really show up for state house, like the for state assembly elections and state Senate elections, and also the gubernatorial race, really could determine the fate of how Colorado is perceived nationally, and whether or not presidential candidates will even bother lobbying for Colorado's electoral votes in the future. So, yeah, it looks like we're looking at a Brockler Johnston or Brockler Polis election right now. It seems like I I can't think that other candidates really pull ahead in the Republican primary. George Brockler is very much like a Republican darling for prosecuting right. James Holmes, but also District being in favor of District. gun rights and very conservative on social issues. So. It'll just be curious to see how things fall in the future. And for all of your gubernatorial news, be sure to tune in to State of 38 in the future. Mm -hmm. This is how we get long-term users. (laughs) Speaking of long-term users, (laughs) let's talk about marijuana regulation. So there was a really interesting segment on this podcast that served as inspiration for this sort of roundtable format, which was the Weeds Vox's Policy Podcast. They reviewed this white paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research, which essentially states that Washington's changes in tax policy towards marijuana have been beneficial for their society at large. Just to add as a background, Colorado has taken in an exorbitant amount of money from taxing marijuana already. They received $500 million as of early June, I think. So Colorado is looking for taxation policies which keep revenue up, but which simultaneously allow for actual benefits in the future. So this is what the National Bureau of Economic Research finds in their abstract. The median United United States voter supports the legalization of marijuana, at least in part due to a desire to increase state tax revenues. However, states with legal markets have implemented wildly different regulatory schemes with tax rates ranging from 3.75 to 37% indicating that policymakers have a range of beliefs about the industry responses to taxes and regulation. They examined the policy reform in Washington, a switch from a 25% gross receipts tax collected at every step in the supply chain to a sole 37% excise tax at retail. Using novel, comprehensive administrative data, they assess responses to the reform throughout the supply and consumption change and find the tax regime provided strong incentives for vertical integration. Tax invariance did not hold with some types of firms benefiting much more than predicted. Consumers bear 44% of the additional retail tax burden. Then they find that consumer demand for marijuana is price inelastic in the short run, but becomes price elastic within a few weeks of price increase. So so yeah, what this means is that with a 25% gross receipts tax at every step in the supply chain, that just means that every time a transaction occurs with marijuana, it gets taxed, so whoever grew the marijuana selling it to the dispensary or someone processing it would have to pay, the person buying would pay a 25% tax, then once that is sold to a consumer, they pay another 25% tax. So this was replaced with just a 37% tax when the consumer buys it from the dispensary. Um, So what this did is encourage vertical integration, meaning 
that as opposed to a business wanting to open multiple locations of a shop or something like that, expanding their own shop, whatever, they instead sought to purchase their own their own farm so that they would grow their own marijuana and no longer have to pay the 25% gross receipts tax. And the reason why this is important for Colorado is because Colorado very much has gone the opposite way in terms of how its tax regime is operated and also how we regulate marijuana more broadly. So when Colorado initiated regulations for the marijuana industry in 2010, we adopted a 70-30 rule, which says that retailers have to grow 70% of the products they sold. That sounds like a decent idea because it means that you're not having massive marijuana producers being separate from their sellers. But in actuality, what that means is that smaller dispensaries are starved out. And so barriers to entry are so high that you are becoming more monopolistic in the way that marijuana markets are competing with one another. So Colorado, by switching to a more Washington-based model where there is less vertical integration, could see some serious societal benefits. Because if vertical integration decreases, it means that there's more access, which means that marketing schemes like we've seen in alcohol companies in the past wouldn't work as effectively. Another really interesting finding from this paper from NBER is that when Washington switched their tax regime, they saw a significant decrease in the tox in the potency of the THC, which was purchased in every batch of marijuana, which means that consumers were opting for marijuana, which was weaker once the taxes were higher on the consumers themselves. So when consumers bear the brunt of the tax regime, they're going to seek out marijuana, which is less harmful to themselves and less harmful to society generally, which is why it might be important for Colorado to switch to this sort of thing. Because if you get marijuana companies acting like alcohol companies, you're just going to bid up the THC contents of marijuana and see really negative societal outcomes in the long term. So just to give you an idea of what Colorado looks like now, the state sales tax on all tangible personal property, including marijuana, is 2.9%. These taxes are changed on the final consumer purchase price. Um, as of July 1st, 2017, retail marijuana and retail marijuana products are exempt from state sales tax. The tax will still apply to medical marijuana and medical marijuana products. Local and special district rates are left up to municipalities in general. So there is some sort of leeway with municipalities as to whether or not they'll tax marijuana higher or lower. And then there is a retail tax of 15%. That's significantly lower than Washington's 37%. So what Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff and Alvin Chang point out on the Weeds Vox Policy podcast is that Washington's experiment has been successful. They've been able to put the brunt of taxation, at least partially, on the consumers to encourage less marijuana consumption and less potent marijuana consumption, which is good for everybody. Obviously, the, the reason we're legalizing marijuana isn't so that people can get high. It's so that we can have some sort of contestable market where the state can actually tax marijuana effectively and regulate its consumption. That doesn't work if we have huge companies that grow out of processes and policies which encourage vertical integration to a point where it starves out local competitors. And then beyond just resulting in consumers purchasing more potent marijuana, this might also lead to those companies having the resources to engage in marketing strategies that are designed to addict, like get more people addicted to the product. 
which has happened with tobacco and alcohol companies. So that's probably just another added benefit is that aside from using less potent marijuana, there will be less people who are actually addicted to it. And just to clarify, when Henry's talking about addiction, he means psychological, yeah, not physical not addiction. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting, which is going on nationally with the marijuana debate, which isn't around one, but whatever. Um, California is actually giving out licenses to marijuana dispensaries for people that were committed, uh, who, who were prosecuted for drug crimes in the past. And so you see a societal element to the legalization of marijuana, which is at least acknowledging for a lot of the mistakes of the drug war. It's always, one of the benefits of Colorado becoming the first state to legalize marijuana is that other states can learn from us. But one of the downsides for Colorado is that we don't get to learn from the successful policies as much as other states do. So looking for sort of reparations e ways to redistribute the revenue gained from marijuana or to allow the taxes that are gained from marijuana sales to be distributed to people which have been negatively impacted by racialized policies in the past could be something that Colorado was looking at if it really wants to be socially conscious about marijuana policy in the future. For sure. So let's go from DC to Denver and talk about the opioid crisis. So uh, a major headline in the news recently has been Donald Trump declaring a national state of emergency in regards to the opioid crisis that we are currently experiencing. So first, we'll give a background on how the opioid crisis that we've all started hearing about pretty recently, uh, how that started. So this really started in the late 90s when drug companies started making prescription painkillers like Oxycontin that were based in the same chemicals as things like heroin and said that these drugs were not addictive, which we now know is a lie. So people then got addicted to these painkillers and turned to drugs like heroin because they're in theory easier to obtain than things like Oxycontin that you need a prescription for. So this is supported by a lot of research that shows that you are much more likely to start using heroin if you are first prescribed opioids as a painkiller. Yeah, you're like 20 times more likely to use heroin if you have become addicted to opioids in the past. And that's why you've seen not only an increase in overdoses from opioids, uh, or from opioid prescription drugs, but also black market opioids like heroin and also like fentanyl, which is an extraordinarily concentrated version of the same sort of drugs. And then part of the reason this has become such a big issue is that the rate of opioid use disorder diagnoses has grown by nearly eight times the rate of the most effective treatment. So even though regardless of how effective the treatment is, people getting, you know, more people being addicted to opioids would be a bad thing. This also means that the rate at which we are able to treat these people has not kept pace with the rate at which opioid addiction has spread. So aside from just being bad to be addicted to opioids, treatment is becoming more and more scarce. Yeah. And then so what President Trump's response was, was that he declared a state of emergency. This was a policy that was supported by his rival turned transition director, Governor Chris Christie of New Jersey. Essentially, this policy... What this policy change means is that President Trump is giving the executive branch more leeway 
to allocate funds the way they see fit in order to decrease opioid addiction and opioid overdoses. So it unlocks $1.4 billion from the FEMA FEMA's funds. So all of the money that we normally use for hurricane, like for fixing cities it's, it's after traditionally hurricanes. Used for, yeah, like natural disasters and, and disease outbreaks, which obviously we haven't seen anything major. Yeah, and that's and that's sort of an important part of this is this has sort of been championed by people on the left. It's like finally people are taking this problem seriously. But we also need to remember that congressional Republicans are not willing to allocate more funds necessarily towards preventing opioids. In one of the last rounds of the Obamacare repeal effort, there was something like $45 billion that was thrown towards opioid addiction in order to try and earn the votes of West Virginian Senator Joe Manchin, who was a blue dog Democrat who potentially could have voted for the bill, but who held his ground and did not. So just remember that while Trump is declaring a state of emergency might seem brave, what it actually shows is the impotence of congressional leaders to take action towards allocating funds to what has clearly become a national crisis. Thousands of people have died. Opioid o- o- opioid overdoses are the number one cause of accidental death in the United States now. That With uh, 33,000 to 52,000 overdose-related deaths being, uh, being caused by uh, heroin or fentanyl. Yeah. So no one knows what the Trump administration will do next because even though this is a declaration of national emergency, it's very possible that President Trump, who doesn't have really a lot of policy knowledge about many things is just saying this in order to court his voters. Just finally introduce something bipartisan. Or, or not next. not even introduce something bipartisan, just to throw something to the counties in Ohio and Michigan which voted for him, which overwhelmingly see a disproportionate impact by the opioid epidemic. Also, just another thing, the opioid epidemic is by no means just a white problem. It tends to be talked about in the media as middle America's biggest issue, but people of color and communities of color are also affected by the opioid epidemic and have been affected by drug crises in the past, which have not received as much press because it turns out that everyone supplying the news is white. Um, <laughs> so, and then, yeah, just in the interest of not being supervised here, this state of emergency declaration is not entirely useless. At the very least, it signals to individual states that this is an issue that is important, which might encourage them to take action on their own and does allocate funds to this, which it's worth mentioning is a little odd given that Trump wants to, first off, wants to cut the budget to FEMA and also that a lot of the, at least in Colorado, Governor Hickenlooper has talked about how the Medicaid expansion that was part of the Affordable Care Act gave treatment to a lot of people who would not otherwise have had it for opioid addiction. So it seems a little counter to the goal of reducing heroin addiction to also try to reduce that Medicaid expansion that gave treatment to so many people. So we'll see. We'll see what the next steps are. Um, yeah, just to contextualize it for Colorado, we are disproportionately impacted by the opioid epidemic. We're in the bottom half of states who see increases in overdoses, particularly in 
rural areas, there's some research that suggests that, so, so one of the biggest problems with the opioid crisis is that there's not really a large way to handle chronic pain. Blue Cross Blue Shield says that there's 100 million Americans who suffer from chronic pain. And we don't really have a good way of dealing with that. And so it was a convenient narrative for drug companies to say, here are drugs which take your pain away with very little addictive qualities. And it was really easy for people to buy that because it was convenient for them to believe that a pill could fix their pain. One possible solution, which could be particularly important for Colorado, is that marijuana is known to reduce chronic pain pretty substantially with much fewer of the addictive qualities of opioids in the past. So Colorado could be particularly slated to see the benefits of that in the future. Um, Colorado might not see a lot of the dollars from the declaration of emergency because President Trump did lose Colorado in the 2016 election, and he likes to hold funds hostage from states which he believes are not in his best political interests. So if he decides that Colorado isn't important for him, we might not see rehabilitation centers being built. One undercurrent to this is that even though there is a lot of talk about rehabilitation, that still isn't the number one proposed policy everywhere. Even Democrats like Joe Manchin from West Virginia are saying that we need a second war on drugs, which is ridiculous, but which is important for remembering at the state level in particular, because the way we punish addicts in the future will determine whether or not people remain addicted. So if Colorado wants to actually help the opioid help alleviate the pain of the opioid epidemic, what we might see is an investment in rehabilitation centers, training of doctors to be able to serve people who want rehabilitation, and then also increases in price for opioids. There are some experimental ideas from places like Ithaca and Toronto of allowing people to go to treatment centers which provide heroin to addicts directly, which means that addicts would go and seek free payment or would seek free heroin usage. That has been proven to reduce addiction in the past, at least anecdotally from those cities. I don't know if Colorado is as forward thinking as doing that yet, but it would be interesting to try. Um, Another thing, if you read the Denver Post, you probably have a much more dystopic view of how the opioid epidemic is impacting communities in Colorado. It's important to remember that these are real people whose lives are being ruined by a problem the Denver Post sort of writes about it as if it's as if like homeless addicts are just litter across from their Colfax apartment building that they rented out for offices. So it's important to remember that these are real people whose lives are being affected and we need more targeted ways to prevent the opioid crisis in the future. So let's talk about immigration. Yes. So something happened in Trump palace intrigue world, where Ryan's Priebus, who was the establishment chief of staff for the Trump administration, was fired in favor of General and Secretary of Homeland Security John Kelly. John Kelly was largely seen as a Trump backer while he was at DHS in that he essentially allowed the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency to go loose and pursue policies which the Obama administration would have deemed too aggressive. 
So Dara Lind at Vox says that this could indicate a dark reboot of President Trump's policies, where rather than focus on congressional Republicans' agenda, he could be focused on the more nationalist side of his own agenda, which would mean increasing deportations in particular. Building the wall. Building the wall and, yeah, building the wall and increasing deportations. So the way that that would work is that the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency targets people which they believe are undocumented in this country through mean, like, like hiding out in schools and courthouses in order to catch undocumented people as they're leaving places which they seem to be safe. Um, there's... So, in the past, we've talked about sanctuary cities on the podcast, which are just cities which don't cooperate with the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement Agency on matters of deporting illegal immigrants, meaning that if a cop in Chicago, a sanctuary city, pulls over someone who an undocumented immigrant and discovers this and then arrests them. ICE is then notified of this person and the Chicago police department can choose, choose whether or not they will hold the person to hand over to ICE or release the person. So this results in what some people consider to be, uh, like you hear people talking about how this means that murderers are let go, which is not true. Most cities will draw a line at violent crime and say, yes, if this person committed a violent crime, then we will hand them over to ICE. But if we pulled over someone who is speeding, we will not comply with ICE. Yeah, so Chicago is suing because the Trump administration says that it will not allow for federal funds to be issued to sanctuary cities in the first place. So Mayor Rahm Emanuel is suing because... There's a 10th Amendment constitutional claim which says that states and cities are not required by law to follow federal law um, unless the Supreme Court decides it. And so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Denver and Aurora have explicitly called themselves not sanctuary cities in the past for fears that they would lose federal funding in the first place. So the impacts to Denver of Trump's increase in a deport in Trump's deportation surge is that immigrations and customs enforcement officers will go to places like courthouses and schools, which we've already seen in the past. And what that means is that if you're undocumented in this country, you're much less likely to press charges against anybody because you can't go to a courthouse and you're much more likely to bring your kids to school. Um, which means essentially that people that are undocumented in this country will have a much, much harder time getting around. They will not have safe areas to be. Um, also, one impact that we've seen nationally is that the Trump administration's crackdown and rhetoric has been enough to deter undocumented immigrants from ever seeking the United States at all. So far less people are going across the border from Mexico into the United States because of fears of deportation and brutal treatment at the hands of Immigrations and Customs Enforcement officers. You might think that that's good. For Denver, it probably is not, because it means that they are, there's already a labor shortage in Denver. We have the lowest unemployment rate. Colorado has the lowest unemployment rate of any state in the country. Um, especially in construction, we need people to build things, because we're growing so fast that we need 
more buildings and more infrastructure, but there's a huge labor shortage in construction. And without access to undocumented people, we probably won't get to see those things built as quick as we could, which means that Denver and Colorado will reel economically as immigration declines. Um, other things on the immigration debate, there was a bill proposed by Senators uh, Purdue and Cotton, the Cotton-Purdue Raise Act, which would cut legal immigration by 50%. That would have a lot of the same economic impacts on Denver and Colorado generally. So that's the state of the 38th. See you next time for another roundup on policy and politics.